We're preparing our hearts for Easter by studying along with Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth in a series called Incomparable, The Person of Christ. It goes along with her new book, also titled Incomparable. Here's Nancy. I want to talk today about another obvious way that Christ is incomparable. The sinlessness of Christ. Sinlessness. Now, I believe that's a word, although every time I do it on my computer, it shows up that it's not correctly spelled, because I think that's a word we're not very familiar with. Sinlessness. And that's part of what makes Christ unique, what makes him incomparable. As I was preparing for this series, I thought, surely everybody who's listening to this program would agree that Jesus was sinless. So do we really need a whole program on the sinlessness of Christ? But it turns out, as I did some study, that it's not necessarily true that everybody agrees that Jesus was sinless. This is the Revive Our Hearts podcast with Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth, author of Incomparable. For March 4th, 2024, I'm Dana Gresh. hear more from Nancy on the sinlessness of Christ in just a moment. I thought it'd be fun to call her publisher at Moody Publishers. You want to do that? His name is Randall Payleitner. Randall, hello. How are you doing today? Hey, Dana, I'm doing great. So good to see you. So good to hear your voice and to talk with you today about this important book. You've been a big fan of The Incomparable Christ by J. Oswald Sanders. And that's the book that inspired Nancy to write her new book. Why are you so enthusiastic about Sanders' book? How does it compare to Nancy's book? Yeah, great question, Dana. I've long told people that The Incomparable Christ by J. Oswald Sanders was one of my favorite books I ever read. Not just a Moody book, of course, where I am uh, have proclivity to love Moody books, but <laughs> overall, I love that Sanders title because of how it systematically, faithfully, and just in an enriching way walks through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in a way that is inspiring and moving. I'm not a guy who cries while reading books, but I did a few times reading that book when I first read it my first year working Mm. here at Moody nearly 20 years ago, and I couldn't stop telling people about it. Wow. Well, it inspired Nancy too. And so how is Nancy's book comparable to it? Excellent word, comparable. Yes. So it Jesus Christ, of course, is incomparable, and these two books are comparable to each other. (laughs) Nancy's book is obviously inspired by it in the title, uh, Nancy's book, Incomparable, uh, and J. Oswald Sanders, The Incomparable Christ. And the, the basic way that they work together is the outlines are very similar. If you look at the tables of contents for each title, Nancy's book is definitely inspired by, and many of the chapter titles or subtitles of Nancy's chapters match in theme, tone, and, and word with the Sanders content. Now, the content itself is entirely different. Nancy, early on in the book, says, hey, I love the Sanders book. I was inspired by it to write my book, and both of our love for Christ is what comes out on all of those pages. The main experiential difference for the reader is that Nancy's book is split into a 50-day walk. So, Nancy's chapters mm. are each days, which makes it very easy and accessible to kind of spend one day considering the divinity of Christ, one day considering the sacrifice of Christ, one day considering one of Jesus' last words on the cross. So in that it's split up into specific days, and then the parts are equal lengths, where Sanders' chapters can be a little longer or a little shorter. Nancy's are 
are pretty comparable to each day. So the, the reader has a, a more even experience over that nearly two-month period reading the book. Now, you can read it faster. I read Nancy's book faster. Don't tell anybody. Uh, but I, I, I probably read it in a week, uh, maybe <laughs> f- maybe less. But uh, you can read it. In, uh, it's set up to read in 50 days. That is actually the subtitle of the book, Incomparable 50 Days with Jesus. Thanks for that explanation, Randall. And thanks for joining me. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you this week here on Revive Our Hearts. Thank you so much, Randall. Now, Nancy was just saying that, to her surprise, not everyone believes in the sinlessness of Christ. In fact, I discovered some astounding statistics in this Barna research poll that says there's almost an equal split in opinions among American adults about this subject. 42% of Americans polled believe that Jesus sinned. Only 40% believe that he did not. You say, well, that's, you know, you go out in the whole secular public and that's a lot of people who don't believe in Christ and that skews it. Well, then they did a survey of denominations where people who attend different denominations believe. And I'll give you the the best denomination on this count was the Baptists. And only, well, listen to this before you amen so quickly. Only 55% of Baptists strongly disagree that Jesus sinned while he was here on earth. And they were at the top of the pack on this survey. That means that nearly half of Baptist survey think that Jesus might have or did sin. And as someone said to me when I was discussing this with them the other day, they said that's pretty bad if Christ is our righteousness to think that he might have sinned. Well, let's talk about this whole issue of sin, where it came from and concept of original sin. That's a doctrinal concept that's an important one. In Genesis chapter 3, you know the story, many of you, of how Adam and Eve, created without a sin nature, disobeyed God's law. They went their own independent way and they sinned. And since that time, every human being who has been born has come into this race with a sinful nature, except one. As we're going to see in just a moment. That's called the doctrine of inherited or original sin. Adam uh, represented all of us. We were in him. And in him, we're all born into this world as sinners. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, little babies are doing sinful things necessarily. But we sin because we are sinners. We have inherited that sinful nature from our fathers who got it from their fathers who got it from their fathers who got it from, and mothers as well. So we read in Romans chapter 5, for example, by the one man's disobedience, who's that one man? Adam. Many, that's all of us, were made sinners. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Scripture is very clear on this. There is no one righteous, no, not one, Romans 3 says. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the human condition, fallen, sinful. It's true of you. It's true of me. It's true of your children. It's true of your grandchildren, sweet as they may be. They are sinners (laughs) in need of a Savior, separated from God, with one exception, and that's Jesus, who lived a sinless life here on this earth. He did what the first Adam failed to do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And the scripture is so clear on this. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted yet without sin. Now the question is, how was he born without a sinful nature 
like every other human being has had in the history of the world since Adam and Eve. Well, we know that human life begins at the point of conception, the moment that the DNA of a man and a woman combine. But not so with Jesus. Remember, as we talked earlier in the series, that he existed before the creation of the world? He didn't come into existence the night he was born in Bethlehem. He had existed for all of eternity past. And the physical body of Jesus that was born in Bethlehem was a special creation of God placed in the womb of a teenage girl named Mary. It's what we call the miracle of the virgin birth. You're familiar with the scriptures, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Don't ask me to explain it, I can't. It's supernatural, but it's true. Luke chapter 1 tells it this way, uh, the angel said to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So he says, you're going to have a son, but his father is going to be God. And Mary said to the angel, understandable question here, how will this be since I am a virgin? I can't get pregnant. I can't have a child. I've never known a man. The angel's answer is really important. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, that's Jehovah God, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Holy child, the Son of God. So Jesus was not the product of the physical union of a man and a woman. But he was supernaturally conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's never happened before. It's never happened since. God specifically did this at that moment in time and history to send Jesus Christ as a man into this world. I want to tell you what, this is a plot that none of us could have devised. We couldn't have designed it. We couldn't have thought of it. And if we could have thought of it, we couldn't have made it happen. Only God could do this. And as a result of this life of Christ being placed in Mary's womb by the power of the Spirit, no sin was transmitted to Jesus for Mary or Joseph. The virgin birth, that's what we're talking about here, is vital. It makes it possible for Christ to share our humanity, and we've been seeing how important that is, to be born of a woman, while at the same time not sharing our sinful nature because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so we learn in the scripture that he was absolutely pure and without any taint of sin from the day he was born till the day he died. The sinlessness of Christ. Then the question rises, but if he didn't sin, was he really fully human? Well, I want to remind you that a sinful nature was not part of our original humanity. Adam and Eve were truly fully human before they sinned. Sin was and is a perversion of our true humanity. And Christ came, the sinless God-man, to restore our full and sinless humanity. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from what? From their sins. This is God's amazing plan. There's nothing like it in all of the history of the universe. 
He sent Jesus to this world, the sinless God-man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Why? So that there could just be a virgin birth? That was the point of that. The point is he came to restore our full, sinless humanity, to rescue us from our sins. Now, the sinlessness of Christ is well attested. It was attested by his friends, people, the disciples who lived with him for three years, day in and day out. You don't have to live with me for three days to know that I'm a sinner. Probably a lot less time than that. But for three years, these men lived and walked and talked with Christ. They saw him in all kinds of circumstances. But two of the disciples who were closest to Jesus later wrote letters and talked about his sinlessness. John says, the apostle John in 1 John, in him, there is no sin. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You just think about it. Jesus never, ever, ever sinned. From birth through the day he died. He never sinned in word, in deed, in attitude. He was never impatient, never arrogant, never selfish, never rude, never unkind. He never disobeyed his father. He never chose his own way rather than God's. And not only was there this negative sinlessness but he was also positive holiness. He said and did everything the father told him to do. He loved God and others perfectly every moment of his life. I mean, this is something I think about my own life and I can be sitting in my study for hours on end, not committing any outward sins as far as anybody would know. There's not even anybody in the room for you know, days and weeks on end. And you could say, she's not sinning. She's there being spiritual, studying her Bible, studying for revival hearts. But God knows the heart. He knows the thoughts. He knows the attitudes. He knows the impatience. He knows the critical thoughts of the thoughts. And then the positive, active holiness, always doing what pleased the Father. And that's what is said of Jesus, both in the Old Testament, Psalm 40, and then repeated again in Hebrews 10. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. That describes Jesus. He not only didn't break the law of God, not ever once, but he perfectly fulfilled it every moment of every day of his life. I think about that passage in Micah 6, verse 8, that we often hear quoted. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Whoever has fulfilled that? They said, that's all God requires of you? Well, you know, who can do it? (laughs) Jesus. He perfectly fulfilled that mandate. Not only did his friends testify to his sinlessness, but his enemies gave testimony to his sinlessness. Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. When he tried him multiple times, there's nothing. This man has not sinned. He's not done anything wrong. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The thief on the cross said, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Even the demons, when he exercised them, said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. His enemies testified to his sinlessness. Jesus' own testimony was that he was sinless. Now, somebody could say, I'm sinless, but you'd have to be arrogant to say that (laughs) unless it's true. And in Jesus' case, it is true. Listen to these verses from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I do always the things that are pleasing to my Father. Any of us who could say that? 
He asked in John 8, which one of you convicts me of sin? Pause, look around, wait. Now, I want to just say, I would not ask that question in any room of people, okay? And in Jesus' case, there were plenty of people who wanted to bring him down, but there was never a charge of sinfulness that was brought or could be brought against him. And by the way, that question remains unanswered still today. No one has ever convicted Jesus of sin. He said in John 15, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, you say, well, what's the point? Why are you belaboring this? Well, Jesus had to be sinless in order to be a satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. Let me take you back to the Old Testament system of sacrifices for a moment here. In the Old Testament, worshipers who wanted to be right with God and who knew that they had sinned would go to the tabernacle or the temple, they'd go to the priest, and they would bring a lamb. Or if they were poor, they would bring a less expensive, but some kind of animal that would be sacrificed to atone for their sins. Now, the animal couldn't atone for their sins, but the animal would be killed and its blood would be shed, and the animal was dying as a substitute in the place of the sinner. Of course, those animals were just a type pointing to Christ, who was yet to come. And those lambs had to be, you read this phrase many times in the Old Testament, they had to be without blemish. You couldn't take to God, you know, the runt of your litter. You couldn't take to God, you know, these lambs that nobody else wanted. It had to be a lamb without blemish. And then once a year on the Passover, every family would take a lamb And Exodus 12 says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. They would kill the lamb. They would put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. And God would see that blood and would pass over. His judgment would not fall on that house. For hundreds of years, day after day, the Jewish worshipers brought these sacrifices. Lambs were killed, bleeding lambs, dying lambs, blood spilled, blood everywhere. Being a priest was a bloody business in those days. And year after year, the Passover would be observed. The lambs would be uh, killed and their blood would be shed day after day, year after year for hundreds of years. Lambs dying, lambs dying, lambs dying. So imagine when Jesus approached the Jordan River where John was baptizing and people heard John say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter says it this way, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, the wages of sin is death. That's what God's word says. But Jesus had not sinned, so he didn't deserve to die. He died a death that we deserved. He was innocent. He was falsely accused. We, on the other hand, are guilty. We are rightly accused. An old hymn writer put it this way, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, was he. He was the perfect sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could permanently, once for all, atone, make payment for our sin. 
And because of his substitutionary death in our place for our sin, we can be declared righteous, sinless, justified, right with God because he died in our place. Romans 5 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience, whose obedience is that? Jesus, the many will be made righteous. 1 Peter 3 says it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He had to be sinless for redemption to be accomplished. Now, not only did Christ fulfill the type of the sacrificial lamb, but he also is a picture of the priests who offered those lambs. Listen to what Hebrews 7 says. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who's it talking about? Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners in the sense that he was sinless. And then it goes on to say why that matters, why it's so important. He has no need, like those high priests in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. See, the priests in the Old Testament, they had to keep offering sacrifices. And when they did, they had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And then because they sinned again, they had to offer more sacrifices. Hebrews 7 says Jesus didn't have to keep doing this since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He had no sins of his own to die for. So he could die once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, I know some of you have been listening to this old, old story for many, many years. For some of you, it may be new. But again, let me just say, ask God to give you fresh eyes, fresh ears to know the wonder of this old, old story of Jesus and his love. And then just a reminder that his sacrifice as the sinless lamb of God was for the purpose of cleansing us from our sins. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He was holy and without blemish, but he died to make us holy and without blemish. So how can we thoughtlessly, carelessly, intentionally, willfully, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, then go and so to speak, spit in the face of Christ, trample his blood underfoot by going out and sinning as if it didn't matter? It does matter. He died to cleanse us, to make us holy. And let me remind you that Jesus was sinless not because he relied on the supernatural power of his own divine nature or because his divine nature overpowered his human nature to keep him from sinning, but rather he was sinless because he utilized all of the resources given to him in his humanity. I've said that before in this series, but I think it's worth repeating. We need to remember this. And how did he do that? How was he sinless? He loved and meditated on God's word. He prayed to his father. 
He trusted in the the wisdom and the rightness of his father's will and word. He relied on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen him to do all that he was called upon to do. So how can we be kept from sinning? By the power of Christ, the sinless one who lives within us. We're enabled to live holy lives by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I love that song that Twyla Paris wrote a number of years ago. And it just summarizes what we've been talking about. Your only son, no sin to hide. But you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty sod and to become the Lamb of God. Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. I was so lost I should have died, but you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod and to be called a Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the holy Lamb of God. O wash me in his precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Can you say that to him, that he is your Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Have you been washed in his precious blood? You know, I think there are many, many people in our churches today, different denominations and stripes, who they know all this, but they've never personally placed their trust in Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. They're religious, but they've never been made righteous. And I wonder even among those listening today if there could be perhaps several here who say, you know, I've heard this before, but God's making it real in my heart. And right now, you can do it, eyes open, looking at me, listening to my voice. Right now you say, I want to place my faith in Christ. I repent of my sin going my own way, doing my own thing. I recognize that I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. But I lift my eyes by faith up to Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God without blemish. And I receive Him. I receive the gift of what He did for me there on the cross as He died in my place for my sin. Scripture says, at the point that you place your faith in him, there's an incredible transaction that takes place. Christ took on himself all your sin. But at the point at which you trust him as your Savior, he imputes or credits to your account all the righteousness of Christ. His perfect, obedient life becomes yours. Maybe that's already been true of you and you just need fresh today to worship and to thank him for that. Or maybe today for the first time, you're trusting him as your perfect sacrifice, your savior. Then rejoice that he has made that transaction and has given to you his righteousness. Oh, thank you, thank you, holy lamb of God. We worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
The sinlessness of Christ is crucial to your salvation. Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth has been showing us why. This important topic is especially meaningful as we get closer to Easter. When you focus on Christ, you will be changed. That's why we're bringing you Nancy's series on her book, Incomparable, in these weeks leading up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. I hope you'll spend some more time thinking about what Christ has done for you on the cross. To help you do that, we've designed a set of scripture cards you can carry with you to memorize or to share with others. They're the same size as, say, a deck of playing cards. Each one is beautifully designed with a quote from Nancy on one side and a Bible verse on the other. You can find details on the incomparable scripture card set at reviveourhearts.com. They're our way of thanking you for your donation of any amount to help support Revive Our Hearts. Now, March is Partner Appreciation Month, and we're asking God to help us raise up 350 new Revive partners here in March. A Revive partner is a friend of the ministry who prays for us and gives a set amount each month. Portia Collins is here with me. And Portia, you're the main connection person for our Revive partners and you're a Revive partner yourself. Tell us, why did you become a Revive partner? I became a Revive partner first and foremost because I believe in the ministry, what what is happening, what God is doing here at Revive Our Hearts. And then I think even on a larger scale, I am often reminded, uh, there's a passage in Philippians where Paul talks about how the Philippian church they were like the only ones who came and like financially supported him and supported his ministry specifically. And so that has always been in the back of my mind when I think about parachurch ministries. Of course, I'm giving to, you know, my local church. But when I think about a lot of these parachurch ministries like Revive Our Hearts and other ministries that I support, I am grateful that I have the ability to be able to come alongside and to give in a way that helps to advance God's kingdom agenda. And so I think that is something that I will always do. Me and my husband, we are givers. And I think it's something that we want to make sure is a part of, you know, our lives and the legacy that we leave and something that even that we teach and communicate to our daughter. And so, yeah, I think it's multi-layered with just just loving Revive Our Hearts, wanting to come alongside the work that is being done here. Um, but also looking on the whole at how, what are ways that we can support God's kingdom agenda and further that. Thanks, Portia. You know, Bob and I are Revive partners as well. And what really encourages me is seeing that many of our staff are also Revive partners. We're seeing the inner workings and we're seeing the fruit every day. And we're the first ones to say, I don't just want to work here. I want to give here. I want to participate in what God is doing. Now, I got to tell you, 350 new partners here in one month is a big goal, but we serve a big God. I'm inviting you to be a part of the cool things God is doing through Revive Our Hearts. To sign up, head to reviveourhearts.com slash partner or call us at 1-800-569-5959. Again, it's reviveourhearts.com slash partner or 1-800-569-5959. Well, the Gospels tell of an incident on a mountain. The clothing of Jesus began to shine and His glory was revealed. Why was that moment so significant? 
the answer offers great hope. And you'll hear it tomorrow on Revive Our Hearts. This program is a listener-supported production of Revive Our Hearts in Niles, Michigan, calling women to freedom, fullness, and fruitfulness in Christ.